You're listening to the Belmar Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Belmar or to see our upcoming events, visit belmarchurch.com. I was in Indiana last week for a retreat and uh, conference, and um, it was really good. So you know, I looked at the weather all week, and it was always two or three degrees different. Sometimes it was colder there. Sometimes it was colder here. Uh, so uh, I know maybe there was rumors I was in a tropical place. Uh, that's not true. You knew that was a lie because my wife was here last week. And if I were in a tropical place, she would be there with me. It was hard, though. I flew out last Saturday and I'm at the airport and I'm at the gate and it's going to Indianapolis and every gate around me is like Belize, Cabo San Lucas. And I thought that's kind of cruel, you know, if it was like, I don't know, someplace else that wasn't as exotic, then maybe I would have enjoyed that. But uh, no, I'm glad to be back. I appreciate Jerry Bo speaking for us last week and the good job that he did. I was able to watch that online. And and so uh, we are continuing our series today in Mark. And we're in Mark chapter 3. And Je- Jerry spoke last week out of Mark chapter 2, the calling of Matthew. And I mentioned this before, but we're going quickly through the book of Mark. So we are skipping over a lot of things, not because they're not important, uh, but we're just hitting some things as we go along, talking about the idea of Jesus Christ as a servant and as our sacrifice. And this morning, we're going to look at two groups of people that are talked about and discussed in Mark chapter 3, the Pharisees and the apostles of Jesus. These guys were These two groups were different in a lot of ways. They were different in how they were viewed by society at that time. The Pharisees were looked at as the religious elite. They were were the teachers to the people. They were the examples to the people. They were the people that, that others looked up to. The apostles, as we'll see here in a few minutes, not so much. They were kind of this group that came from different uh, backgrounds, and and they're just walking around following this this carpenter from Nazareth who's a teacher, and they were different educationally. Pharisees would have would have studied the law, studied they most of them probably had the first five books of the Old Testament completely memorized. They were experts in the law of God. They had been educated, the apostles not so much. But as we're going to see, there was a difference also in their heart. And so we go to Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse number 1. It says this, Jesus went into the synagogue again and noticed a man with a deformed hand. Now, this is on a Saturday, the Jews' Sabbath day. That was the day in which they couldn't... um, They couldn't work. They set aside. God had given it to the Jewish people as a day to worship and remember him. And so back in chapter 2, it tells us that this is the Sabbath. We also know that because that's when they met in the synagogue. 
And so he, Jesus noticed a man with deformed hand. Verse 2, since it was the Sabbath, Jesus' enemies watched him closely. If he healed the man's hand, they planned to accuse him of working on the Sabbath. They thought, we know what Jesus is going to do. He's going to heal that guy. How dare he? And so they were watching him, not because maybe he would perform a miracle and transform this guy's life. They were watching him to try to catch him doing something wrong. Jesus said to the man with the deformed hand, come and stand in front of everyone. Then he turned to his critics and asked, does the law permit good deeds on the Sabbath or is it a day for doing evil? Is this a day to save life or to destroy it? But they wouldn't answer him. And so you can imagine this scene. They're in the synagogue. There's this man with the deformed hand. The, the Pharisees see it. Jesus sees it. And they're waiting to pounce. But Jesus isn't going to be subtle about what's going to happen. He calls to the, the man to the front. And then he turns to the crowd and specifically to the Pharisees. And he says, here we are gathered to worship God. Is it a day for doing good? Or is it a day for doing bad? And they sat back and said, We'll just wait and see. That's the way critics are sometimes, isn't it? They're just like, oh, you know, they're not going to tell you exactly what they think. If the Pharisees were, would, were truthful, they would have said, we don't believe you ought to heal that man because it's work and you shouldn't work on, on Saturday. The problem with that is all the other people in the crowd they would have, A, loved to have seen a miracle, and B, thought, it wouldn't it be a good thing if this guy's hand was useful again? It didn't make sense what they said. So they just silently sat back in judgment. He looked around at them angrily and was deeply saddened by their hard hearts. Then he said to the man, hold out your hand. So the man held out his hand, and it was restored. At once the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. See, the Pharisees knew the law, but they didn't always practice what they knew. The Jews at that time, God had, had given them the Sabbath. And he said, listen, like God rested on the week of creation on the seventh day and looked at what he had made and said, this is good. So too, you should rest on Saturday. And that's the day they would come together and worship. But then man did what men often do. They began to define and add to it. They said, well, for us to really honor the Sabbath, this is what we're going to do. And they began to make rules and, 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 and all kinds of little guidelines on how they were going to operate. My wife and I, when we were in Israel, uh, 
we were there on a, over a couple of Saturdays, the, the Shabbat, the Sabbath. And one of the things in the hotels where we would stay, they had the, the Shabbat elevator. And not all of the elevators in one of the hotels where we stayed, because there were a lot of non-Jews staying there too. Some of the elevators were Shabbat. Some of them were not. You say, well, what's the difference, preacher? Well, the other six days, no different. But on Saturday, if you got on the Shabbat elevator, it just went to every floor and stopped. It went up and then it went down and then it went up just all day. That's what it did. So that the Jews would not have to push a button because that was work. Now, I'll be honest. When I think about that, I think that's absurd. But they're sincere in their desire to follow after God. And the result of that sincerity and man's intervention over time is something that we might look at from our perspective and say, that's crazy. But don't we have some things sometimes where we say, well, to really be a good follower of Jesus, you've got to dress this way or talk this way or act this way or do this thing. And, and someone from the outside just looking at that say, is that really, is that really what Jesus would have? Now I look around and, and we're a fairly casual church. And so I, I don't think I'll offend anybody, but there was a time when it was like, well, if you're going to come to church, you got to put on your Sunday best suit and tie and, and, and dress and, and, and all of that. And, and some of you, you, you kind of think back to those days, but think about the absurdity of that a little bit. That in order to follow a Jewish carpenter that lived 2,000 years ago, and as far as we know, probably his entire life wore robes and sandals, we would need to wear a suit and tie on Sundays to honor him. It's not as funny when it's a little closer to home, right? You with me? See, we're going to talk about the contrast between the Pharisees and the apostles this morning, and it's easy for us to just go, well, of course, I'm like the apostles. Pharisee now is, if, if even people that don't know much about Scripture, if you say Pharisee, they'll think hypocrite. It's a negative thing. But in the day of Jesus, it was not a negative thing. People aspired to be a Pharisee. People aspired to, to, to be looked at like that. They held the Pharisees up. And if we're honest... Sometimes we're not as far from the Pharisees as we might like to think we are. They knew the law, but they didn't always practice it. In Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, it says this, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey what they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never 
lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do, Jesus said, is for show. Later in verse 11, he would say that the greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The Pharisees would make a show. They would, they would have little herb gardens where they, would, where they would grow herbs to season their foods, and they were so careful to take a tenth of that little herb garden and make sure and tithe on it so that they checked every little box. And yet their hearts were, their hearts were hard towards the people. They were, they were self-righteous. They were sincere. But the Bible says that their heart, their hearts were hard. They were about their own interests. In Luke chapter 16, beginning verse 13, Jesus said this, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. The Pharisees, who dearly loved their money, heard all this and scoffed at him. And he said to them, You like to appear righteous in public, but God knows your hearts. What this world honors is detestable in the sight of God. See, their heart was for themselves. They, they enjoyed the, uh, the adulation of others. They enjoyed being exalted. They wanted people to see them as righteous, but their hearts were about themselves. Their hearts were about money and the things that they could get. And Jesus condemned them for it. Matter of fact, they were so blinded by jealousy towards Christ that they were willing to work with their enemies. It says in verse number six that the Pharisees went away and met with the supporters of Herod to plot how to kill Jesus. Some translations say that they met with the Herodians. Now, Pharisee might not mean a lot to you, and Herodians might mean even less. But the Pharisees were, were Jewish men. They, they believed that, that the Jewish nation should be governed by the law of God. Certainly not by the Romans coming and, and occupying the nation of Israel and dictating to the Jews the laws that they had and the way that they should live. And then, to top it all off, you had this man, Herod, who was ruling over the nation of Israel, and he was often referred to as the king of the Jews by the Romans. But he wasn't a Jew. To the Pharisees, that was blasphemy. And you had this group of Jews who supported Herod. Well, they were polar opposites of the Pharisees. The Pharisees would have condemned them under any other circumstance, but they found common ground, amen, in killing Jesus. All they could agree on was that they had to get rid of Jesus. So jealous and hard were their hearts. They would work with their enemies in order to vanquish Christ. 
They couldn't see that God's own son walked among them. They couldn't see that God himself had taken on flesh and that the miracles that he performed were 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 divine evidence that God was among them. The authority with which he spoke, the love and compassion that he had for the people, the Pharisees could see none of that because they thought, surely if God came, he would come through them. Surely God wouldn't come and condemn them. He would come and encourage them, identify with them. What if God chose to work in a way that wasn't exactly how we thought he should? Might we get bent out of shape about that? Hopefully our hearts would not be jealous in that way. Let's look at the next group as we skip down in Mark chapter 3 to verse number 13. It says, afterward, Jesus had been healing. There had been crowds all around him. And then afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he appointed 12 of them and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him and he would send them out to preach, giving them authority to cast out demons. These are the 12 he chose. Simon, whom he's named Peter. James and John, the sons of Zebedee. But Jesus nicknamed them sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who later betrayed him. It seems like it's just a list, but there's some things here that are very important when it comes to the calling of the apostles of Jesus. The first is, it says in verse number 13, afterwards Jesus went up on a mountain and called out the ones he wanted to go with him in verse 13. But what we know from Luke is that Jesus had spent all night in prayer. In Luke 6 and verse 12, it says, one day soon after, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray and he prayed to God all night. At daybreak, he called together all his disciples and chose 12 of them to be apostles. And then Luke also lists the names of the 12 apostles. Notice that Jesus is God. He had been given an assignment from from the Father. But he spent all night in communication with the Father, making sure that the 12 that he picked were exactly whom God wanted him to pick. He was in in constant communication with the Father. Jesus was surrounded. We tend to think of, of, or maybe I, I don't want to speak for you, but when I read the gospel sometimes, I think of Jesus and like the band of 12. You know, and they would travel and they would come into town. But the the reality was Jesus always had groups of people around him. There were a lot of folks who saw the miracles, who would travel with Jesus, maybe not all of the time, but a lot of the time. Men and women, children. And so here Jesus calls up his disciples, his followers, But then out of them, he picks 12 specific guys. It's interesting 
who he picks. He picks two sets of brothers. And those two sets of brothers, there's three lists. Luke chapter 6, Mark chapter 3, and then in Acts as well. The two sets of brothers are always listed first. And Peter, who Jesus renamed Peter from Simon, he's always listed as the first guy. Peter's number one. It's kind of funny, right? Because John describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. But Peter's always first on the list. I think that there's some reasons for that. We always see Peter, right? He's always first to respond. He's probably first to to jump out. and, And, you know, he was the one who said, you know, if that's really you walking on the water, Jesus, call me to you. And Jesus said, come on. And then I think Peter went, um, okay. But he was the only guy who ever walked on water, right? I mean, he was, he always spoke up first. I kind of think like if Jesus was like, we need a volunteer, 11 guys would step back. Peter take two steps forward anyway. And then Peter's brother was Andrew. In the list in Mark chapter 3, he's listed fourth. Not as prominent as Peter, probably just struggled to get a word in edgewise, you know? Some of you might have a sibling like that. My brothers probably think that. And then James and John were named. Their father's name was Zebedee. And so they're called the sons of Zebedee. But Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. That's interesting, isn't it? Because if you go through the gospel of John, John's all about love. But the gospel of John was written at the end of John's life. And we don't really see it a whole lot. But James and John must have been some guys to deal with If Jesus said, I'm going to nickname you sons of thunder, that doesn't really sound like meek and mild guys, does it? I love our our church and I love our B-Kids. I love watching families walk in on Sunday morning. You know, and I can tell parents, like, you, you get up and you're coming to church and, and you, you try to get your kids dressed and ready. And, and, and I appreciate the effort. I remember when our kids were little like that. Some, some Sundays, man, some Sundays went great. Really, let's be honest. I didn't ever know because I always had to come to church early. I've been working in church most of my life. But from what my wife would tell me, some Sundays went pretty good kids got up, they ate breakfast, they were excited to go to church, they got dressed, and they rolled into church. Some Sundays, maybe not quite as much, you know? Sometimes your kids wake up and they're just not real excited to be there. I love watching families come in. You know, sometimes mom and dad, mom or dad and and the kids, they're all walking in together and they're one big happy family. We've got some kids, and when those when they hit the lobby, it's at fifth gear, full speed. You know what I mean? 
And in church, we might look at that and go, that kid's got the devil. But Jesus would look at that and go, that's a son of thunder. Right? Amen? Matter of fact, I was thinking about this a little bit. Peter, James, John. These are the guys who were on the Mount of Transfiguration. They're the only three that saw Jesus in his glorified state while he was on the earth. They were with Jesus all of the time. They got to see and hear things that the other, even the other 12 didn't get to hear and see. But they were also the guys. Peter was the guy who denied Christ. He was always putting his foot in his mouth. He was always, you know, three sentences in before his mind really caught up with what his mouth was saying. I can relate to that in a lot of ways. And James and John, what are they? They're the sons of thunder. But you know what? I also think it's a lot easier sometimes for God to direct those who are already going than to get those moving who decided to stand still, spiritually speaking. You with me? And God forbid the sons of thunder downstairs right now. God forbid that that ever bothers us. That we're ever bothered by the fact that we've got kids running 90 miles an hour everywhere. Now listen, if they run by me, I might triple. I'm just saying. Or at least tell them to quit running. But you know what? I don't ever want them to think that I'm not glad that they're here at church. Amen? I've told you before. I was a bad little kid. When I when I went and did, uh, uh, several years ago, I did a, a series, and, and I went back and was talking to uh, one of my old Sunday school teachers, and she was the, the daughter-in-law of the main Sunday school teacher. The lady had passed away, but she taught me, and she came up with a picture. And she said, I think you're in this picture. But we didn't know. You, I couldn't tell for sure, but it did look like the back of my head because that was all that was in the picture. But I was standing in the corner. And I was like, yeah, that does look like me. And that is where I spent a lot of time. Remember when standing in the corner was a punishment you could make kids do? I don't know what that was supposed to accomplish, but yeah, right there. I spent some time in the corner. I remember in kindergarten, they had a little play. And different kids played different things. And, and that was when I learned what a dunce hat was. Because that was the one prop that I got to wear in the play. But God took Peter, Andrew, and James, and John, these fishermen, these sons of thunder, they were the ones who spread the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the place. He used a variety of people. He, he used Matthew, as, as Jerry talked about last week, a tax collector, a guy who worked for the Roman government. He also used a 
a guy named Simon who was called Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a group of people. They were just known as we hate the Romans. They were always trying to fight against the Romans. They were, they were trying to organize rebellion against the Romans. So God took Matthew, the tax collector for the Romans, and Simon the Zealot, and they both followed Jesus. Can you believe that the Messiah brought together people from different political persuasions? Hmm. I'll let you make an application there. But it is something to think about. I want to skip down to verse 14 and 15 and close this morning by looking at the equipping of these apostles. Then he appointed 12 of them, Mark 3, 14, and called them his apostles. They were to accompany him, and he would send them out to preach, giving them the authority to cast out demons. The first thing I see about these 12 guys is they were called to be with Jesus. It's not a light thing to say that they would accompany him. See, the Pharisees saw Jesus heal on the Sabbath, and they went out. They went away from Christ to plot his death. They found others who would be on their side. And they would come and hear Jesus. They would come and spy on him. But the apostles were with Jesus. So much of of the gospels, we have the teachings of Jesus, the actions of Jesus. But don't you just wish you could know what the disciples, those apostles knew to just be with Jesus as they walked from one village to the next, what that conversation was like. As they sat around the fire after the crowds had gone away, what that conversation was like. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse number five says, don't let money be satisfied with what you have. For God has said, I will never fail you. I will never abandon you. So we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, so I shall, I will have no fear. What can mere people do to me? The apostles were with Jesus, but if we know Jesus Christ is our Savior, his Holy Spirit dwells within us, and we are never without him. Even when nobody else is around, we are not alone. We are not abandoned. He is always with us. That's a comfort, amen? That God has not abandoned us. He will guide us. He will lead us. He will convict us. He will correct us. But he is with us if we know Jesus Christ. Like the apostles, we can be with Jesus. Not only were they to accompany him, but he would send them out, in this case, to preach. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8, says this, God saved you by his grace when you believe, and you can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. 
Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done, so none of us can boast about it. You've heard Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 before, right? That God saves us by his grace. We don't earn it. We can't do it. And so because of that, we can't brag and say, you know, hey, I don't know if you heard, but I've been saved. And God forgave me. We can't brag on that. Listen, I didn't do anything to earn God's favor. The definition of grace is unmerited favor. That means you did not deserve it. That's what grace is. And that's how we're saved. God saves us by his grace. But then look with me at verse number 10. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. We mentioned earlier that Jesus spent the whole night in prayer the night before he picked his apostles. That's interesting to me because don't you think he knew? I think he did. But I think he just enjoyed spending time with the Father. He was communing with them, with him. He was was spending time with his Father. He was confirming what he was about to do because it was a significant step in his ministry. These were the guys who would be commissioned to go out and they would be empowered. And all the time, Jesus would say, I don't do anything except for the Father gives it to me. When, when he would spend so much time in prayer, and people would, would look at that. He would say, listen, I'm doing what the Father has given me to do. And we understand that Jesus was born with a mission. He went and he taught, and then eventually he died as a sacrifice for us, rising again on the third day to show us his power over sin and death. But God also has a mission and a plan for you. Ephesians 2.10 says, you are God's masterpiece. He has works for you to do that he intended before you were even born. God has a plan for you. The apostles were with Jesus, and then they were set out to do what Jesus assigned them to do. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us, and God has a plan for each and every one of us. God has assignments for each and every one of us. And sometimes we forget that. Sometimes we get so caught up in our daily routines and the things that we've got to do and our jobs and our families and, and, and this obligation and that thing. Sometimes we, if we're not careful, we can forget that God has a plan for us. He said, you are my masterpiece and I have created you. For, for a plan, for an assignment. Man, sometimes we find that, don't we? You ever just find that thing and, and, and feel like I'm doing exactly what God's just equipped me to do? But I'll be honest with you. Sometimes it's easier for me to see that in the lives of others than in my own. I don't know if you've experienced that. Like I have some friends who are missionaries 
And I just see how God created, I mean, even little things about their personality and just their, their interests and stuff. And I see how God is using them. And it's amazing. And then when I talk to them about that, they're kind of like, yeah, you know, I'm just trying to do what God's called me to do. And then I think about my own life. And I see how God has worked circumstances in my life. I see how God has done different things to, to get me, to, to, to direct me and lead me to where he wants me to be. But sometimes it's hard to see that in our own life. But you are God's masterpiece. Jesus Christ came to the earth and died for you. Not just to get you to heaven, but because God created you with a purpose and a plan. He desires for you to do good works on his behalf. That's God's plan. Have you ever thought about how ludicrous God's plan really is? He took 12 guys. One, you knock him out right away. It tells us he's going he's gonna to betray Jesus. And then he's got these fishermen, former tax collector, a political rebel, all these guys. And they're the ones that are going to spread the good news of Jesus all around the world. That's God's plan. And as I look at you, God's plan is for us to change the city of Lakewood with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look around. That seems a little crazy. But he says, I take the weak. I take the that those who don't feel like they can do it. God took Peter, the one who was always putting his foot in his mouth, and he said, that's my masterpiece. He took John, the son of thunder, and said, that's my masterpiece. He, he wants to take you. He's saying, you are my masterpiece. I've got a plan for you. They were with Jesus. They were sent out from Jesus and authority was given. Matthew chapter 28, Jesus gives the great commission and he says, all power is given to me. Go therefore. In Acts chapter one and verse eight, it's repeated. It says that Jesus said this, but you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, we talked about the fact that if we know Christ is our Savior, his Holy Spirit lives within us. And so we have a companion. But it's not just a companion. It is a power source. He says you will receive power. The Holy Spirit will be in you. You can do things in my name that you could never even think about doing on your own. Listen, for some of us, just talking, having a spiritual conversation with someone is like some of you just break out sweating thinking about that. 
you know what to say, and I'm going to have the wrong answer, and I always get my words confused, and I, I say, listen, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Well, I could never talk to someone about Jesus because, you know, they might, they, they would have arguments, and I wouldn't know how to answer them. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you doesn't mean you can have the answer for everybody's question. The Bible tells us we're supposed to be witnesses. Now, there are expert witnesses, but witnesses just tell what they, they saw, what they experienced, what happened to them. If you're sitting at a red light, two cars are coming and they hit each other head on, you don't have to be a traffic pattern expert to testify you're just like, well, I was sitting there, and boom, you tell what you saw. That's what a witness is. Well, you know, God's loved me, and he saved me. He forgave me of the wrong things that I've done, and, and, and he walks with me, and even when I mess up, he loves me, and he forgives me, and, 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 and he, he guides me. And every good thing in my life I recognize as a blessing from him. That's what a witness does. And we are empowered by the very very spirit of God himself. And we can get so caught up in our daily routines and the things of our life not only do we forget that God has a work for us, we, we don't even recognize that he's empowered us to do that. But God, the Lord Jesus took these apostles, these 12 men, and he said, they're going to be with me. They're, they're going to they're gonna be sent out. They're going to be empowered with authority. And later they would say about those men and others that they turned the world upside down and that they would look at them and they would recognize them as ignorant and uneducated, but they would say about them they had been with Jesus. So are we going to sit back with hard hearts and jealousy and judgment like the Pharisees? Well, we'll just wait and see. God desires to make us like the apostles, to be with him, to be empowered by him, to be sent out to do what he has called us to do. Let us fulfill his call in our lives. Gracious God in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much for your word that convicts us, that challenges us, that instructs us. God, I pray that you would help us to take that, to be challenged and moved by it even this week. God, help us to spend time with you. Help us to seek to fulfill your calling, your the works that you would have us do even this week, believing that you empower us, 
that we are your masterpieces called to do what you desire, what you have for us. We love you, Lord, and we thank you for the opportunity to gather together today. In Christ Jesus' name we pray.